The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Thank you, Pastor. It's great to be with you. Our text is Psalm 118, pretty much smack dab in the middle of that psalm, verse 17. I have boldly claimed this to be Luther's life verse. And in a moment, I will try to argue that claim. But for now, let's simply hear it. Psalm 118 Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It was in 1530 that Luther, and while this is the 100th anniversary just past of the armistice to end World War I, yesterday, Luther turned 535. And of course, just a few weeks ago, we passed the 501st. Historians just love anniversaries. We just keep finding them everywhere. It was just a few weeks ago that we had the 501st anniversary of that moment that started it all. Well, in 1530, Luther and a small band of theologians from Wittenberg and two sons got on a little boat and went down the Elbe River and got off at Torgau. Torgau was the ancestral home of first Frederick the Wise, Luther's protector, and then at this time, having passed Frederick the Wise, his younger brother, John the Steadfast, was now the ruler of Saxony, Germany. Did you love those family names? Frederick the Wise, John the Steadfast, but we never hear about Harold the Mediocre. And they come into to Torgau, the castle walls rise above the riverbank. It's a charming little place. They spend a few weeks there, and other theologians join their band, and Luther hammers out what comes to be the body of the text of the Augsburg Confession. And around mid-March, they set out for Augsburg. Luther gets as far as Coburg with this party, and then he can go no more. Since the Diet or the Diet at Worms, Luther was under the ban. A death sentence was over his head. And as long as he was in Saxony, Germany, he had the protection of Frederick the Wise or John the Steadfast. But outside of Saxony, Germany, he had no such protection, and he was not promised safe passage to Augsburg, and so Luther remained behind at the castle Coburg as the rest of the party went on to Augsburg. This was a very tense six months for Luther. From mid-April to early October, Luther was holed up in the castle Coburg. It was tense 
because of the precarious nature of the German Reformation. It was only a dozen years old at this point. And just a year prior, the attempt to bring a coalition between the Swiss Reformed churches and the German Reformed churches fell apart at the Marburg Colloquy as Luther on the one hand and Zwingli on the other could not come into alignment. And so here stood the German princes and the German churches in isolation, surrounded by the papal states, the threat of the Turks from the east, And would this tiny, precarious coalition hold together or would it fall apart? The stakes could not have been higher. And Luther, by disposition prone to anxiety, was in one of the most tense moments of his life. You should look up the Castle Coburg. It's one of Germany's largest castles. It's the stuff of fairy tales. It's Absolutely stunning and beautiful. Don't look it up now, though. Wait (laughs) till, till later. But for Luther, these were anxiety ridden months. But what did Luther do? He turned to writing. Over the course of that six months, he produced somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 5 0 treatises. And among them was a treatise on Psalm 118. Luther loved the Psalms. He first lectured on the Psalms in 1513, prior to the 95 Theses. Then he lectured on the Psalms again immediately after the 95 Theses, and he lectured on them again and again and again. He translated the Psalms from the Hebrew into the German and published the Psalter before he published any other portion of the Old Testament in German. He developed a practice in his adult life of reading through the Psalms at seven three-hour segments throughout the day. This was a medieval practice, the book of hours you would divide a 24-hour day up into eight three-hour segments. But by now, Luther needs his beauty sleep, so he, he combines. He doesn't wake up in the middle of the night. He puts six hours together so he can sleep for six hours. But at seven designated segments throughout the day he's reading the psalms such that he's completing the entire psalter every two weeks and it's a practice he carried on through most of his adult life every two weeks reading through the psalms it is fair to say that luther lived in the psalms and he loved this one we think of the 46th a mighty fortress is our god But he called Psalm 118, my beloved psalm. The psalm begins, as you look at it in verse 1 and verse 29, begins and ends with bookends. The same verse, the same expressions. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's a poetic structure. And not only does it draw attention to what is said as the first word and then reiterated as the last word as you go out the door, sometimes that poetic structure also points us to the middle, to highlight the middle. 
And in the middle, what we find is this moment of desperation. So often we bump into it, don't we? This moment of desperation of the psalmist. And he comes out of this moment of desperation with this declaration of verse 17. I shall not die. Now, spoiler alert. The psalmist dies. Luther dies. And this is not some human bravado here. This is pure trust and confidence in God. Go back to verse 11. The psalmist says, My enemies surround me like a swarm of bees. I don't know if any of you have ever been chased by a swarm of bees. I remember being chased by a swarm of hornets while I was on a roof. That was a disturbing moment in my life. And they buzz, and it's cacophonous, and it's chaotic, and it's... And then notice verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. No terra firma, no stability. This is that dream that we all have, and we hope we wake up before we hit the ground so that we don't die in the middle of our sleep. But that helplessness of a sense of falling. And in this precise situation, the psalmist says, I am firmly in the hand of Almighty God. I shall not die. He has hedged me in, and He has protected me. And He knows the precise moment and the precise second, and not a thing will befall me before or outside of God's will for me. And in that I can have complete trust and I can say, I shall not die, but I shall live. Luther needed this verse in 1530 and he found it and he loved it. He also loved the second half of this verse. And I shall recount the deeds of the Lord. Luther was from 1513 until the time of his death a pastor at the Marienkirche in Wittenberg. Two churches in Wittenberg, the Castle Church, with the most famous doors in all of history. And on the other end of the town, Mary's church, right across from the black cloister where Luther had his home and his study. And there he was, a faithful pastor, preaching the word of God. And that's what preachers do. They recount the deeds of the Lord. And as long as God gave Luther breath and life, he would recount the deeds of the Lord. I don't have absolute proof that Luther said, this is my life verse, but I'm pretty sure if we asked him, he would say it was a good candidate. And he needed this verse. But what we learn here, and as we go from this verse to the end of the chapter, what we learn from Professor Luther, our teacher, he teaches us how to read the Psalms through this particular psalm. And Luther says, you read the Psalms three ways. Well, first of all, he says, read them. By his own example, live in the Psalter. Three ways. Number one, see yourself in the Psalms. Identify 
with the psalm. See yourself in the psalm. Number two, see Christ in the psalms. And number three, see the splendor and the majesty of our triune God in the psalms. The psalms ultimately invite us to behold our God. Well, let's look at these. We've touched on the first. See yourself in the Psalms. What Luther found when he came to the Psalms is that the Psalms represent the entire range of human experience. It's all in there. The victories and the triumphs and the defeats and the disillusionments and the disappointments. The entire range of human emotion is captured in this book. The height of joy and the depth of despair, the Psalms strike a major key and the Psalms strike a minor key. And every moment of human experience is found within the Psalter. And as we read the Psalms, we find ourselves there. We find ourselves identifying with the psalmist. We find ourselves being pushed so hard we feel as if we're falling. And we need the confidence. We need the confidence of a verse 17. I shall not die. Luther said, see yourself in the psalms. Now when you see yourself in the psalms, it's a little bit tricky. It's difficult. If we come to verses 19 and 20, we find that Luther sees something that he can't come to grips with. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous, the righteous shall enter through it. Well, this was the stumbling block for Luther this business of being righteous and the righteousness of God. And so here we have the righteous gates of a righteous God that only the righteous people can go through. And Luther can't do this. In fact, what did he say when he first was confronted with the righteousness of God? I hate this righteous God. There's no way Luther would do anything but tremble before a verse like this. It's not an invitation It's a locked door. It's a barricade. And so immediately, as we see ourselves in the psalm, we are brought to see Christ in the psalm. Verse 20 is a bit of a, or 21 rather, is a bit of a transition, a hinge in the psalm. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And this leads us in verses 22 to 26 of some of the most messianic terrain in the entire Old Testament. It's all about Christ in these verses. Now, Luther loved that this was about Christ. Luther, following many theologians before him, had the construct as viewing God of, on the one hand, the Deus absconditus or absconditus, the hidden God. I always think of that as something the dentist tells you that you have. Oh, you've got a little absconditis on that back molar back there. 
that's not what it means. It actually means hiddenness. To abscond something is to hide it. So God is hidden. Don't the Psalms tell us many places that he has hid his face from us? At one point, the psalmist tells us that God dwells in a thick cloud of darkness. And long before Jesus uttered these words on the cross, it was a psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then theologians tell us about the Deus Revelatus, the hidden God and the revealed God. And this God who makes himself known, he makes himself known through nature. We sang about it in that hymn. He makes himself known through his word and he makes himself known through his son. Read the prologue of John. We beheld his glory. And so Luther saw the hidden God in the Psalms, the God who was a God of justice and might and his justice demands that God crush his enemies and his all might all power enables him to crush his enemies and all of us would be crushed before a holy God but for Christ and so I thank you I thank you that you have become my salvation do you see verse 22 does it ring a bell does it ring a New Testament bell in your ears The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Five times it's quoted in the New Testament. It gets significant airplay. And then, skip down to verse 26. Do you recognize this? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what do we think of? Palm Sunday. And the streets lined with the people as they recite this psalm, as they sing this psalm and inviting Jesus in. We see Christ in the psalms. Now, if you go back up to verse 23 and 24, we often take these verses in isolation. I do it. You do it. We do it all the time. We're in the midst of a building project, building a new building behind our campus. It's beautiful. I love it. It's majestic. I watch it every day. When the construction crew leaves at night, I sneak back there and go through the building and snoop around. That's not recorded. I don't know if I'm legally allowed to do that. And I stand there and I say, this is a marvelous thing. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We do this all the time. Luther says there is a specificity to this. Don't miss it. And that specificity is Christ in his work. This bringing about of our salvation, this enabling us to be righteous so that we can go through the righteous gate and that we can stand before a righteous God. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then this next verse, this was, a, this was a song. You remember the song, the echo song? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Remember this song? This is the antidote to Christian grumpiness, this song. You wake up, you're grumpy, you get your grumpy self out of bed, and you have to tell yourself through gritted teeth, this is the, Lord, the day that the Lord has made. 
Luther said the same thing. There's a specificity to this. This day of salvation that has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This day of the incarnation. This day of the perfect life. This day of Good Friday. This day of the resurrection. This is the day that the Lord has made. This day of our salvation. Let us rejoice. Let us no longer trembling under the right hand of God's wrath, but rejoicing. And having seen Christ in the Psalms, now we may behold God. And so we come to verses 27 to 29. We see ourselves in the Psalm that points us to Christ. We see Christ in the Psalms, and now our sympathetic high priest leads us by the hand right into the very throne room presence of our God. What does the psalmist say? It seems like a redundancy. It appears to be a redundancy to us. The Lord is God. It's not only here. It's in many places throughout the Psalter. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. And what is the psalmist saying? It's an awkward expression, but the psalmist is saying, the godness of God. The grandeur of God, the majesty of God, the transcendence of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God. The Lord is God, uniquely, supremely God, alone. Medievalists, Luther knew this expression had a Latin expression for this. Ens perfectissimus. Ens just means being. Perfectissimus is bad English grammar. It's a superlative of a superlative. We don't do that in English. We don't pile on superlatives. What Muhammad Ali did. It was the mostest and the bestest. We don't talk like that. The mostest and the bestest and the perfect we don't talk like that but Latin does and scripture does God is the most high the most perfect the ends perfectissimus and how do we come to this God oh do not miss the sacrifice that was necessary Do not miss the payment that is necessary for us to be able to approach this God, this holy transcendent God. So here too the psalmist says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So God stayed the knife of Abraham over his son. But he did not withhold his dear, precious, only begotten son from the cross. This sacrifice on our behalf. This one, this spotless lamb, this perfect, sinless one 
sacrificed on our behalf. And what is the result of all that? Light shines out of darkness. Light shines out of darkness. And not only does light shine out of darkness, but notice what is going on here. His light shines upon us. Prepositions are very important. You never want God's face against you. You never want God's face hidden from you. You want the light of the countenance of God shining upon you. And this is an anthropomorphism. What are we saying here? God is pouring out his goodness, his infinite, perfect goodness upon his children. This is our God. And notice what the psalm goes on to say. You are my God. But the highest reverence for this being that is above all being. But this is not some Greek philosophy abstraction. And this is not some deity that looks like us that we are buddies with. But it is the holy God of the universe who is mine. He is my God. And notice what the psalmist says, you are my God and I will give thanks. This is a poetic device. Same line, just a slight tweak to it. You are my God, I will extol you. And what is that poetic reiteration for but for emphasis? And the only thing left for the people of God is to sing his praises. This God who is our God we bow down before him and we worship him in reverence and awe, and we sing his praises. And so it is as if the psalmist now gathers the congregation together to put a huge exclamation point on this beautiful verse. And in one voice, we lift one chorus to our holy God and we say, oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. He is good. And his steadfast love, his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness, how does the hymn put it? There is no shadow of turning with thee. This is our God forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your servant, Luther. We thank you for your servants, the psalmists. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in you, knowing that we are firmly in your hand, no matter what comes. We thank you for this righteous one who gives us his righteousness so that we can enter into your presence. And we confess before you that you alone are God and that you are our God. And so we praise your holy name forever. Amen.